Hello, this is Father David Nix at the Padre Peregrino podcast. I'm very happy to be joined again by my friend, Mike. Mike, welcome back. Thanks for taking time with us twice in one week. My pleasure, Father. Good to see you again. Going to give you guys the CV one more time from Mike. Mike is a retired high-ranking naval officer who served nearly 30 years as a highly decorated SEAL. Mike commanded SEAL teams and counter-terrorist task forces in crisis and contingency operations through 13 deployments to Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Southeast Asia. The majority of his career, he spent in the military's special operation counter-terrorist community, which includes SEAL Team 6, the CIA, the NSA, and many other organizations whose operations often require presidential decision-making. Last time we called the uh, podcast Navy SEAL Speaks on the State of the Church, and tonight is TCE 16, that's Theology and Current Events, Navy SEAL Speaks on the State of the State. Before we get started, quick public service announcement. I had a video removed with Andromeda a few days ago, so I'm going to have to behave myself on some of my questions that I had planned, going to have to blunt those a little bit. VLX and CPX, great time for you all to catch up because my next VLX will be on the 5th of April, which is Easter Monday. As I said earlier, next week, I'll have stations up on this channel and the podcast for you. So good time to catch up on VLX and CPX. Please subscribe if you are new to Padre Peregrino. Now, last time I had Mike on a couple of days ago, I learned a lot from him on the issue of virtue. And this is something I've been wondering. It comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. And St. Thomas Aquinas defines in the second part of the second part, pride. By the way, this is question number 162. St. Thomas Aquinas says pride is an inordinate desire of one's own excellence. Now, at first glance, this seems contrary to what he said right in 161 before that magnanimity urges the mind to great things in accord with right reason. And a little bit earlier in the second part of the second part, number 129, he says magnanimity makes a man deem himself worthy of great things in consideration of the gifts he holds from God. Thus, if his soul is endowed with great virtue, magnanimity makes him tend to perfect works of virtue. So what we can extricate out of that whole thing is it's not an inordinate desire of one's own excellence. If you look with good reason at the gifts that you've been given by God and then make decisions to really shoot higher than your average person in excellence, be that virtue, be it issues of religion, be it issues of fasting, be it issues of say, are you going to be a E1 on a ship or go all the way to be a Navy, uh, a Navy SEAL? So I asked Mike off the air if he could maybe just give us a little bit of an insight into the second part of the second part, 161 and 129 and 162. Um, how do we apply that at the practical level um, of wanting to be men who are humble, but also aiming to magnanimity? And magnanimity, by the way, to the listeners, I think most of you know this, is, is generosity and excellence. Any thoughts on that, Mike? A couple of thoughts, Father. The uh... Uh, and these are these are ideas that you and I have both played with in the past in our discussions, so they may sound familiar to you. But uh, uh, the, the first is from Thomas Aquinas, and that is that that uh, that grace builds on nature, uh, and nature, nature are those natural uh, interest skills and uh, um, things that you have that that are that tend towards excellence. Nature gives you those. So if you take a kind of a, a, a clear-headed inventory of sort of what you're interested in, what you're good at, what you desire to be. Um, I, I think that, you know, I think that through, you know, not only through the exertion of your own will, but through grace itself is that you, you will be kind of led along and accelerated along that path. 
you know, all that has to be underpinned by humility, uh, which is, of course, the opposite of pride. Um, and the other, the other point is, you know, there, there can be a tendency to um, this inordinate desire for, for, for excellence, for one's own excellence, this kind of expansive and exaggerated idea of how, you know, how, how great one is. Um, you just fall back to this simple idea that God, God reveals himself in facts. You know, if you, as you said, if you are a, if you're a paraplegic or somehow, you know, uh, limited to a wheelchair, those are facts that you can't overcome. I mean, they're, they're going to shut certain options off uh, and direct you, direct you towards, you know, certain, you know, other options. Exactly. Uh, but that's, those are just kind of two ways that I think about it. Again, all of this has to be underpinned by, a real like a, a spiritual humility and then a natural kind of humility about you know what your what your limitations are and uh, where, where you really have room to excel yeah and you know something i didn't even realize this when i was reading it to you but when you said that pride you repeated me that pride's the inordinate desire of one's own excellence it reminded me of our last podcast where we were talking about the seals their goal is the whole team it's not just their individual so it just hit me like a ton of bricks when you were saying that right there that um you look at the great founders of these religious orders, like Francis Xavier, when he read the letters from St. Ignatius, when Francis Xavier was on these beaches of Italy, would be on his knees and read them weeping. He thought of Ignatius as, in fact, he, he gave Ignatius um, props for his entire conversion. Or Francis of Assisi uh, often said that if other people had been given the graces he had been given, he, they'd be even more virtuous than him. So, you know, I think that line, one's own excellence, the saints often are looking for the entire good of the church, the entire good of their religious congregation, the entire good of their, of their family, and they want others to be seen as holier than them, like we hear in that litany of humility. Um, and of course, when you said, you know, gifts from nature, and I know Mike knows this, and I know this, but, and I'm sure 99% of the listeners know this, he didn't mean mother nature, he still means the gifts of nature still come from God, of course. And then the gifts of supernature are planted on that and they, and they fit well. And I like how you said that even someone who's in a wheelchair, even though there are certain options in life closed off to him, it does seem incredible how God opens up a myriad of even more options for people who have certain handicaps um, to, to proceed in uh, unbelievable excellence. I think this is something of a reflection, a reflection of what St. Paul says, it, that it's in weakness that, his, that he has become strong in Christ. So Mike here was on the uh, body recovery unit or the body recovery team for the uh, men who had died, the seals who had died in the movie, Lone Survivor. And I think each individual seal had a few other seals um, who were to go find his body. Mike, if, if I remember correctly, you were on the... Uh, the body recovery mission team for Mike Murphy, another SEAL? Yeah, so that was a four-man team, right? Michael Murphy was the team leader from that four-man team. Uh, they were all, um, three out of them, four of them were, were killed uh, on uh, on the mountain there up in uh, Kunar. The fourth is uh, is the fellow who wrote uh, Lone Survivor, uh, Marcus Luttrell. Uh, the, uh, that, that mission happened right around July 4th, 2005, uh, and uh, I, I was the ground force commander for, um, for a, a joint uh, unit of SEALs, U.S. Army Rangers and U.S. Army Infantry that um, 
that was, you know, that had to recover the, the U.S. bodies. And um, we we eventually found all of them, including, uh, you know, the last one took the longest. It took several days. And that was the body of a young seal named Matt Axel. Um, you know, connected with that, too, this is this may or may not be of historical relevance to your listeners. But there was, you know, there was a helicopter shot down uh, with with 16 other special operators killed uh, in in one of the earlier attempts at rescue. And they, uh, those are eight uh, U.S. Army air crewmen and then an eight-man SEAL squad. I remember that part of the movie. I remember that being in there. Um, I just recently watched a movie called Murph, the Protector on Amazon. And uh, you and I talked off the air a little bit about the, uh, the preview, the trailer. I think the movie may have been a little bit more impressive than the trailer insofar as it was really just how he grew up in Long Island, how we saw or his parents saw these traits of him being a guy who stood up for the little guy, a guy who was already... Um, you know, quiet, but accelerated the front of everything. Um, watching that movie, especially since my, mo- my mother's 100% Irish, and this is this Irish family from Long Island, uh, really watching how he had these virtues from a young age of wanting to be this protector. That's why the movie's called Murph the Protector. Now, Mike, I had told you off the air, we were going to get to this question later, but I'm just kind of dying to ask it since we're talking about these young guys entering the SEALs. Would you suggest with the current state of the country, young men join the military with where we are right now in the country? I would ask you a question in return, and that is compared to what other options? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough, right? Yeah. I mean, well, okay. Uh, compared to the option of being a plumber, a physician, an engineer, a... Um, uh, a family man at home, because I guess my question really is one of morality aimed towards a Catholic seal in the sense that, yeah, you, I mean, you joined post Roe versus Wade. We were doing bad things in the country, but, and then this is me speaking, not Mike. So he's not signing his name to this next sentence, but I think we're at a state of worldwide health communism. And there was a communist coup in our country um, at the last election. So I'm not even sure what we stand for, uh, period anymore. And I was actually out to dinner with a young man who's looking at the seals. And I said, I'm not sure I believe where our country is going. I didn't prep Mike that I was going to say this off the air. So you can tell me to cut this out or just, or just disagree. But I mean, let's, let's start on our uh, common ground since everybody knows my podcasts are all about common ground. <laughs> you and I certainly agree when you joined the seal teams in the eighties, our country is a very different place. I think so. Yeah. But I, but I, um, you know, I'll just tell you straight out how I think is, you know, among all the things the young person could do, um, the military is is still one of the, one of the healthiest and most edifying um, careers. A a lot of what you might see anecdotally or in popular media about the the media, uh, the military being politicized, et cetera. I don't believe it for a second. That what really is happening is there's a small level of you know of political uh, leadership, and some of them, frankly, are, are very political and not very military. At uh, you know at, at levels of the Pentagon or the National Security uh, Establishment, who are gonna wax and wane with the, the progressive progressivism of any particular administration, but the um, the discipline, the ethos. Um, the patriotism of of your of that is within the military is so deep that it would take generations to overturn it. 
I'm, I'm highly confident in that. Now, but also keep in mind that there, we really have three different military organizations in our, in our country. We have uh, the institutional military, which are um, all the brass in the headquarters, you know, and all the support functions and the educational functions, the one that tend, the, those functions that tend to get lots of um, attention. We've got uh, the second military that we have is this vast resourcing function, which, which your tax dollars and my tax dollars all help to build in the, in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. These are all the contractors, the defense contractors, the Raytheons, et cetera, of the world, Boeings, uh, who, who make stuff for the military and then certainly charge for it. Uh, and then, but then the last part of the military is, um, is the fighting military. And that's actually pretty small. Uh, it's pretty small. In fact, at the height of the Iraq surge in the mid 2000s, I remember Secretary Rumsfeld being sort of frustrated and angry because he said, we have this, this multi-million man military. I can only deploy a couple hundred thousand of them. Where are the rest of them? Well, it's because the rest of them are in the institutional military and the resourcing military. Um, but, that, but particularly that sharp edge, you know, the, the combat arms, the infantry, the special forces, the jet pilots, the, uh, uh, the, these people tend to be pretty close to objective reality because their job requires them to confront danger and hardship and the elements, uh, you know, in, in, in combat and in training. Pretty, and they, they are, you know, they are the most reliable people on this earth that I've ever encountered. Uh, I have no concerns I just have, I have no concerns really that this element would be corrupted. Yeah. And, you know, as a Denver paramedic, I worked with uh, Marines. Uh, one of my best friends in town is a Marine. Um, and as you and I know, the, the parish that you and I shared on the East Coast, uh, tons of uh, Navy people. I don't doubt the goodness of the grassroots people at the fighting military, as you call it. I don't, I don't doubt their goodness. What bothered me was watching Dinesh D'Souza's movie Trump Card, you know, Trump's phrase and everyone's phrase the past five or 10 years was drain the swamp. And I thought that was just a couple, whatever, liberal senators in Northwest D.C. But when I watched Trump card by Dinesh D'Souza, I saw um, many, many high ranking military leaders placed there by Obama really, really hated Trump. And so I do see a, um, a, a, a big difference between your average Marine who loves our country and some of the people who were covered in that movie, Trump card, running not just military, but even, even groups that I had trusted, like the FBI and stuff. It's the people that Obama put in there that I start to worry for the ground troop levels, the I don't, foot soldiers, probably an old term, the uh, E1s, foot soldiers, whatever. Um, I'm worried about them being led by corrupt men. I'm not worried about the, the little guys. I think they, they love our country. Yeah, it happens. You know, there there are there's definitely a politicization of the highest the highest ranks in the military. Not everybody, but some. It happens, and it has always happened. It's okay. it's not new. Yeah. Um, I I was really trying to to get to your point. Is the military a sort of a moral valid place for a young person to yeah. commit himself to in this day and age? I still say yes. You know, in Fulton Sheen, it's interesting. Fulton Sheen, 50, 60 years ago. I think he was a talk he may have gave to the NFL. He said the last two places there's virtue is is athletics and military. Well, obviously athletics these days, we don't think of them as very virtuous, but I think what he meant is that men in the military and men in athletics learn how to push against their natural desires, put themselves in shape, 
Um, learn that there's a hierarchy th- to things. As I said on the last podcast, you got to look people in the eyes, shake their hands. And that's something that some seminaries probably don't even teach in the world right now, you know, <laughs> to, to basically have virtue and, and treat people with, with respect. And I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. You're still going to find that in all in the Naval Academy, in West Point, even, even probably in, uh, in, am I right on boot camp? You're going to learn some of that. Absolutely. You are right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's um, some of the best priests. I know there's a former uh, helicopter pilot in the FSSP, former military guys make some of the very best priests. Look at St. Ignatius of Loyola. He went from that. Even, even Francis of Assisi, we think of Ignatius of Loyola as the guy who went from being a soldier to a, a priest, but Francis of Assisi left a military career and so he wasn't very good where Ignatius was, but he became a great saint. So yeah, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, will the military and the cops do the right thing? I'm going to read you guys this from ABC, so you know that I'm not getting this from like a conservative news source. This is from ABC News. A Western Michigan restaurant owner was arrested before dawn Friday and hauled to jail, a dramatic turn in a months-long dispute over her persistent refusal to comply with orders and restrictions tied to the coronavirus Marlena Pavlos Hackney, 55, will remain in jail until she pays $7,500 and authorities confirm that Marlena's Bistro and Pizzeria in Holland, Michigan is closed, a judge said. So obviously your average Michigan cop is not going to want to go and arrest uh, a 55-year-old Polish immigrant who's selling pizza, right? They're not going to want to do that. But the problem is I think a cop looks at his situation, okay, I got two kids at home, the mayor's telling me to do this. The governor's a monster. If I don't go and do this, I'm going to get, I'm going to lose my job. And, and I, it's, again, it's the leadership in this country where I worry about men becoming cops these days, even paramedics and firefighters, but more cops and the military. When their feet are put to the fire, do you think we're going to have men in the military and women in the military? I'm not a big fan of women in the military, but there are women in the military. So when their feet are put to the fire, are men in the, and women in the military going to do the right thing, the patriotic thing, the thing that doesn't lead our country into more communism? Well, it really hinges on this, this definition of the right thing, you see, because how you, uh, I, I think they will, do, I think the police and military will do the loyal thing, the thing that appears to be upright and with integrity, how it's, how it's framed is the whole question. If the right thing is simply seen as, as following or implementing a law, then that's, that's one thing. That's a result of positivism. You know, if you pass that's a law, right. it's good, right? So that's, if, if, uh, if there's some sort of jujitsu that happens, that the tricks, people who wield force into just sort of enforcing a law because it's the law, therefore it must be good, then you're gonna, you're gonna see a lot of that. You may see some really unpleasant things. Yeah. Um, if, if, however, the right thing, and this is what I think you mean by the right thing is support for sort of traditional American ideas like free expression and right to bear arms and that stuff. Um, I, uh, I, I think that you're gonna find lots of really solid thinking uh, people in uniform and uniforms are different types who will balk, balk at enforcing infringements on that kind of stuff. Now, for that reason, for that reason, I think that the military is a, is a non-player in that kind of political persecution. Because if you are, 
uh, a government or an administration that is that is intent on um, imposing some kind of totalitarianism. You don't want to take risks. Your position is already weak. You know, making the military sort of a tool in your, um, you know, in your totalitarian sort of vision is a huge risk for for these people because they, they don't know which way it's going to go. And yes, there could very well be uh, disobedience, uh, rogue units, uh, you know, wide scale rebellion, refusal to obey lawful or uh, unlawful orders. That could easily happen. So you don't want to take that risk. You want to use other mes- methods rather than a full frontal assault through the use of force. So I look at something like the 30,000 National Guard troops that were brought to D.C. We were not going to get into this topic of was it a stolen election? I believe it was. But if we go down that route, we're going to, I'm going to have another video removed by YouTube. So we better not talk about that too much. But like you would still have thought that some of those 30,000 would have been looking at the same Twitter handles, the same Facebook pages, the same news that I did and come to the conclusion I'm not going to go and surround Washington, D.C., for a fake election. I mean, or at least, even if they're not as extreme as me, they might say, why are we going to surround Washington, D.C. with barbed wire and more troops than we have in Afghanistan? I didn't hear, I mean, I really hope you're right, Mike. And I think obviously Mike is a subject matter expert. He knows a lot more than me. I'm just pushing back from the little I know. Mike has 30 years of counterterrorism experience. I have a Twitter handle. So listen to Mike, everybody. (laughs) But I want to push back a little bit in the sense that I didn't see any stories of these 30,000 troops surrounding the White House. I didn't see any, not that I would want to see defections and violence, but I didn't see anybody quit. I didn't see anybody say, there's something fishy here. I'm not going to go do that. Yeah. I don't think you would have seen that. I mean, it's a, it's a lawful, it was a lawful order, a lawful deployment uh, in response to a real thing that happened. You know, the Capitol was invaded by, mm-hmm. by, uh, by some unruly protesters. So I, I, uh, I don't think you would see that. And it's just, and they, when it get, once you get sort of deployed, it becomes pretty work a day. Like, okay, you know, this is your shift that's on. You're going to roll out the fence and you're going to man this barricade and stuff. And you don't really necessarily think about um, uh, the, orig- the original sort of cause of the deployment. And then there's another truism at work here, which is I think one reason you still see National Guard troops in the Capitol is it's really easy to get deployed. Oh boy, is it hard to get sent home <laughs> or redeployed. Once, once the, you take the step to put people in place, you find all sorts of reasons to keep them there through inertia more than well, Mike, it's, it's that word you just said, not thinking that worries me. I mean, another video, maybe I mentioned this off the air a few days ago. But in Galveston, Texas, there was a woman trying to get her money out of the bank with no mask on. And the cop took her to the ground, handcuffed her, and they took her out of there. Um, now, you could make the argument, yeah, it's a private property. And even though Texas has a no mask mandate for statewide, at least in private property, she didn't leave and she was trespassing. But I look at my life, if I were a cop, and I worked 90% of my calls as a medic with, with cops in Boston and Denver, that would be the point where I would say, no, you know what? I'm going to go be a plumber or start an online, whatever, selling pants or something online or something. I'm not going to go arrest an old lady who won't wear a mask in, in a bank. And, and I guess, again, this is what worries me is I'm not seeing a lot of defections. And actually, there was one amazing defection. I don't know if you remember this a year ago. The sheriff of Clay County, Florida, 
said he would deputize anybody. This was when Black Lives Matter was going crazy. He said he would deputize anybody in the county for using their weapons against Black Lives Matter. Amazing thing is this sheriff was a black man. This was an African-American sheriff. And now he's arrested on some charge of like adultery or something, which of course is a mortal sin, but it's not an arrestable offense. I, someone will have to Google that. So I'm not exactly sure. But again, when we see people standing up for what's right, like I believe this, this Clay County Sheriff did, we're seeing this totalitarianism just collapse on them. That's what worries me. It's also hard too, to separate the, you know, the, the uh, extreme and the anecdote, you know, the anecdotal versus what really happens day to day. So for, for every really just outrageous event, like a woman being tackled in a bank, there's probably 10,000 other events that take that are quite reasonable. Like, man, please put on your mask. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I really don't want to. I think it's stupid. I think it's stupid too, but you know, we got to do it. Okay. Just do it. You know, I bet that happens far, sure. far more than, right. uh, than right. the extreme thing. But again, you know, we're talking in generalities here. Well, one thing I think you and I are going to agree on, I only came across this quote a couple months ago, and you've probably memorized it a long time ago. John Adams said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So right there, he's basically saying that the constitution's not going to work once we lose our, our morals and we stop being a religious people. Uh, any thoughts on that quote from John Adams? Oh, certainly in the in the realm here of political philosophy, and uh, the uh, the noted author Chris Ferrara uh, wrote a, a great book a few years ago, which I can't recommend highly enough, and that is uh, uh, Freedom: The God That Failed, in which it's he a laid big book. Out. It's a, that's one of his biggest, right? Three or four hundred pages. Yeah, it's right. Have you have you read it? Mm-mm, tell us about it. Yeah. It's great. Book report. It's it's a book report. I don't want to get too into, too into it, but he he just he traces. Uh, enlightenment philosophy right down through the through the John Locke's uh, and the Rousseau's uh, and right into the you know the foundation of the U.S. government and key to it is that you know rights and functions are explicitly enumerated whereas the idea of virtue and morality is only kind of implicitly assumed mm-hmm. so it it worked it worked because there was this great well of natural virtue or in many cases supernatural virtue among um, Americans for generations which was just sort of residual from their t- from from European culture that's that's great no it's, it's brilliant so what I mean there's a lot of things that did it Roe versus Wade and invention of contraception um, maybe one could even argue um, the the killing of many Native Americans I mean what do you think really changed that where we went from a relic, like we, we weren't a country of saints ever, but if Ferrar who goes to the Latin mass says at one point, we at least had natural virtue. What does he say was that main point of change? When did we, when did we start to lose that? Um, it's, it's a, it's a question. It's just a great, but you can't put, point to anything in time. Okay. You know, the, the native, you know, the native population at their different, um, or sorry, I'm sorry, the, the original Anglo population had, uh, of course, Protestantism, many different types of Protestantism, which is a dead, you know, it's frankly just a dead vine. Um, and it was always, you know, always going to peter out. Uh, fortunately, the country, I think, has been, um, its its moral basis has been uh, constantly supplemented by immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, especially in our day from, from Latin America, which are heavily Catholic cultures, but you know, generations ago or Southern Europeans or Eastern Europeans. And so it takes a long time for a people to sort of exhaust their moral capital, so to speak. 
Um, so I would be, you know, I'd be much more critical of sort of deliberate uh, attempts, Hollywood, um, you know, like you said, some of the abortion and, and laws that really accelerate the decay of the moral basis of America. And I like what you say, you know, even though Protestantism, we don't, we don't hang our hats on that. It still was living off the fumes of Catholicism when they came over here in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, at least at the moral level, it was still living off the fumes of Catholicism. So even that, even the good, even the parts of our country that was moral, perhaps made by anti-Catholics, what was good in them? And I think this is maybe the, the, the idea of Tim, in Tim Gordon's book, um, but what was good in them? Uh, was Catholic, you know, I'm not saying that they were um, even great Protestants. I mean, there's a chance they were all deists. I'm not going to get into that debate, but there was something of natural virtue, as you said. So I guess, Mike, one of the big questions is, and I know you're not going to speak prophetically on this, but is this savable? Is this country savable? Salvageable? Is that the right word? Is our country salvageable? Yeah, it depends what you mean by our country. Of course, I, I have uh, I have a, a huge amount of faith and confidence in the American people as people. Uh, the government, the, you know, the government uh, uh, has been corrupt and has been corrupt for a while because there is so much power and money at stake. Um, I don't, I don't think, you know, absent, uh, absent some really visionary leadership, which is currently not on the horizon. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, uh, I don't have great hopes. Uh, I don't see where it goes from here. Now, keep, you know, keep in mind that uh, there is no perfect form of government of the big three, uh, monarchy uh, uh, and democracy and uh, it's kind of an aristocracy. They all have their pluses and minuses. And at the end of the day, it is the virtue of the people who are executing the government that matters, not the, the, the specific form of it. Right, right. You and I lived on the East Coast in the same state at one point. And now we're both out west in different states. Why'd you move from the East Coast to a relatively rural Western state? Yeah, I spent most of my adult life on the East Coast, you know, sort of in the power corridor between, you know, you know, sitting around Washington, D.C. Uh, and, I, you know, with, you know, I'd always been watching with one eye the development of certain things in academia, in government, certain ideas, uh, and, you know, what the slow creep, the slow corruption. Uh, but last year at this time, with the, with the imposition of the COVIDocracy, I, uh, it was a tipping point that was so astounding to me. I said, this is, this is, it. I mean, we are, we're done circling the drain here. We're, we're now down the drain and this, and who, who knows what's happening. Uh, and so it was time, it was time to relocate to uh, like-minded people what I thought would be a healthier environment and like my, more like-minded people. So Mike, you and I used to be on the East Coast. Now we're out West. There's a lot of talk in the traditional world about Second Amendment, about their weapons and stuff. You and I are both pro 2A, of course. But it seems like when you and I are talking off the air, there seems to be a little bit of maybe not an excessive emphasis on that, but there's a wrong emphasis, or at least there's some blind spots in the digital area. You want to talk about that for our listeners tonight? Sure, Father. I mean, I, it's no secret that the gun rights, Second Amendment rights are a very, very powerful force. People are very, you know, very impassionate about it. My sense is it's way overblown. It's a distraction. You may feel, as an individual, you may feel that a weapon and ammunition gives you um, uh, some sort of power of resistance, uh, and it might, but you don't realize the vulnerability that you and I all carry around every day, and that's in our wallet. That's that little magnetic strip 
that you stick in the uh, in the in the ATM or in the uh, the checkout at your local grocery, and a bunch of things happen electronically out of your view, and allows you to walk away with groceries or gas or anything like that. That's that's your vulnerability. If if someone hired me to impose population control, some sort of totalitarianism on free people, I would I wouldn't worry about the guns. That's minor. I'd, I'd shut off the digits or I'd manipulate the digits. And in fact, China uh, is giving us a sort of a, a object lesson on how this works in their social credit system. And I think we're approaching that. As I said, the, the video two before yours was removed at 1 a.m. Well, no, we got to 200 views and then that was removed. But you have credit cards. I mean, what do you do? Um, are, are you talking about watching your back as far as a social credit system, as far as like is that why you're not on Facebook and Twitter and stuff? Or are you saying we should be using a barter system of goats versus cows? What's, what's the solution to the fact that you and I both have credit cards? Yeah, um, there's, there's no immediate solution. We'll continue to use those credit cards because they're convenient and easy. Uh, I, the larger question is what, what scenario do you envision in the future? What are you preparing and hedging against? And there are a range of scenarios. There are this, this, this post-nuclear war, there's EMP stuff, there's uh, political persecution, there's um, widespread social disorder, there's financial collapse. All of those look different. Uh, and, you'll, and you'll do different things to hedge against them and, and prep for them. One of, one of the unfortunate parts of the, the prepper movement that I've sort of detected is there's a radical individualism or radical autonomy associated with it and it looks like this it looks like i need to have every base covered myself so that i am an islander to myself i you know i have everything that could possibly happen in water food meds you know guns ammunition da, 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 da. uh i think that's wrong uh because i i don't i don't think you can prep for all these different scenarios reasonably uh unless you've got lots of discretionary cash to just throw at at, at bets uh I think you should take reasonable preparations and a reasonable preparation looks a lot like preparing for a natural disaster. If you have ever lived in a hurricane prone zone or a tornado zone or something like that, typically you're told to prepare for about two weeks without assistance. And that's that can you cover the basis, you know, food, water, meds, etc. And in a pinch, those two weeks of prep, you can stretch them to four. That's an important bridge to developing alternative um, means of, of resourcing and survival and livelihood. Uh, apart from the material preparations though, which I think are way overblown, just like the, the guns I think are just overemphasized, uh, is the development of mutual support networks wherever you live, local networks in which like-minded people know each other, trust each other, have the skills uh, and collectively, uh, can provide for the security and livelihood uh, and, and, and sort of overcome challenges that are both anticipated and unanticipated. That's the number one thing I would do. Avoid the isolation, avoid the radical individualism and look at it, heck, as a Catholic, we should look at it as an opportunity. If something horrible like that should happen, we should look at it as an opportunity to help our fellow man with what we have rather than pull back and push away. That's good. I read um, Rob Dreyer's Live Not By Lies, I think twice. I think once or twice I did the audiobook, And he talked to people who come from communist countries and they're absolutely shocked at the 
information gathering that that happens on Americans. I mean, even our refrigerators and our car, this isn't just Facebook. There's people talk to their refrigerators and their cars and these, these things get information from them. Um, and so we are approaching a social credit system. And I like what you say about that, because think about it, if you're just in the middle of Montana as you're in, in a bunker and your neighbors hate you, uh, they might unfortunately be the very first people to turn you over to the bad guys. Um, so it wouldn't hurt to have some friends in the area instead of making enemies and living in a bunker because you're going to lose that fight. And, you know, one thing I saw as a paramedic, you have all these different systems that have to come together, fire, uh, police, EMS, and everyone has different for lack of a better term, gifts. That's kind of more of a seminary term, but everyone has different gifts and these are complementary to each other. And I could see where you're saying that as communities need to start, um, uh, even if these are rural areas that look to liberals like communes and they don't have, a, hopefully they don't have like a cultish feel like a commune. Um, I could very much see what you're saying that these families have to learn to rely on each other because maybe one family has this resource and then this next family has this resource and another family has that resource. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's in terms of uh, resilience and adaptivity uh, it's or adaptiveness. It's much more um, it's much deeper and stronger to approach it that way. than I'm going to be, I'm going to solve all this myself. And yeah, yeah. there's no question in, in my mind and not enough of that is done. Uh, in fact, it's people tend to continue to take the opposite approach you know, and, mm. and hoard things and that kind of stuff. If that makes you feel good, okay. And it might help in some cases. It, it's not, uh, I don't think it's the best approach or the most effective approach. How do you make these networks of people organic? Because I probably get a phone call or a text maybe every month saying, would you be our priest at our commune, basically? You know, people are forming this stuff and probably one of those I'm eventually going to say yes to. I'm, I'm not saying yes or no to any of these because I want to see what shakes out. It's probably going to be people I know in real life, not people I met online that I go join if, if you know, Terminator 2 happens and we all get the thermobaric bomb and we all have to go live in a, in a commune. I'm going to go to people I, I know in real life. So I'm, I'm not making fun of the people out there who are inviting me because I'll probably say yes to one of them. Um, not that I'm so special, but I did have to say to someone recently, um, you know, the sacraments are going to follow community, not community, the sacraments, because sometimes people want to form things around a priest or something. And it's like, well, no, we priests are going to go where there's a decent community that doesn't act weird, doesn't act like a cult, but also has the resources to probably live on its own. Again, this is all hypothetical. If things go really, really bad in this country, um, I think priests are going to go where they're taken care of, not where um, something just forms around a cult of personality, be that a priestly personality or a lay personality. Um, and then, of course, priests will have to learn how to uh, milk cows and do, do other things besides just the sacraments. But Catholic communities will need the priests for the sacraments that, that we bring. But I guess my question, that was kind of long-winded, is how do you start formulating these networks of people in an organic way that doesn't become contrived or artificial? Yeah, that's a good question. Remember the first hour um, we talked about the church. We talked about how sometimes traditionalists are in circular firing squads. Mm -hmm. it's, it's because they're, try <clears throat> they're trying to develop a community, in many cases, that's, that's not, they skip the organic part, the hard work, which is the, the, you know, the many, many points of contact and months and sometimes years of real relationships and sometimes doing things difficult together. Now, crisis will accelerate that. But before the crisis hits, you, you should be taking the time to, the time to do that. 
And um, again, there is, there's just no shortcut to it, to reach out to people, make a connection, uh, go out of your way to, to do more for somebody uh, than you're expected to, you know, have integrity. You promise. So saying you like the council of Trent and I like the council of Trent isn't going to be enough to get along for 10 years in a bunker, huh? People try to base relationships on that. You see where it goes. Yeah. It's going to have to do <laughs> right. real experiences in real life. Yeah. 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 That's a great way to put it, Father. It really is. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us again. I think maybe we'll uh, call it a night since I didn't sleep too well last night. And I think that people probably take away tons from the things you've taught them again. So really thank you for uh, all your time this week as a re retired Navy SEAL. And I think a lot of people will be able to uh, take some good notes and take this to heart. So God bless you, Mike. Thanks, Father. Good night.